Welcome to Preserving Valor, a podcast dedicated to saving and sharing the personal stories of veterans. My name is Jay Vissers. This is the third episode in the story of Wesley Lusmore's service in World War II. Again, I'm joined by Bernard, who will help by reading parts of Wesley's manuscript. Hello again. Happy to help. Let's get started. On July 28, after flying a dozen missions over hostile territory, Wesley was given his technical sergeant promotion, which meant he was paid about $205 per month. Adjusted for inflation, that would be about $3,600 in 2024, on par with what technical sergeants are paid today. The difference is that Wesley was earning both combat and flight pay to achieve that $205 per month, and it was exhausting, even for a young man. After we returned from this mission, and after our debriefing and mission dinner, I started to write a letter home, but fell asleep on my biscuit bed and didn't wake up until 9 a.m. Sunday morning, still in my flight clothes. Those long missions were really tiring. Wesley continued racking up missions toward his quota. On the 16th mission he flew, in the Marie, one of their engines took flak damage, and they returned to the base with only three operating. Bomber casualties were relatively under control by this time in the war, but watching other planes go down continued to be a harrowing experience for Wesley and the other airmen. But you're watching these planes that get hit. You see the explosion and plane goes down. Nobody gets out, you know. No ones that do get out, it's still a worry because it, you get down in your parachute and the Germans are shooting at you in your parachute. Wesley kept up with the news at home by reading newspapers like Stars and Stripes. He was upset to read about a strike happening back in the United States. The strike he read about was probably the Philadelphia Transit Strike of 1944, which was written about in Stars and Stripes in August of that year. White transit workers called a sick out over the decision to allow black employees to hold non-menial jobs. I wrote home my thoughts on that. The whole bunch could have made a good infantry division. Certainly, such a thing would not have happened in Britain at that time, where wages were probably less than a tenth of what they were in the States, and the people were thankful to have a roof over their heads, something to eat, some clothes on their backs, and a place to meet, have a warm beer, and sing at the end of the day. There were other strikes during the war as well, over working conditions and pay. Often, the federal government would step in to force war production to resume. Also saw an article about a parachute factory making nylon hose on the side from material they should have been making parachutes with. Some stuff. Of course, it would be tempting. Nylons sold for $8 a pair in England. After his 21st mission, Wesley and his crew got 10 days off of flying, but they got bored rather quickly. It was rainy, and so even with passes into town, there wasn't much to do. Wesley watched and rewatched the movies available in the theater on base. 
There were lots of rumors going around about this time that some of us would be transferred to another theater of operations like maybe China. We were all hoping to stay here and finish up or get enough missions in that we wouldn't be transferred. I don't know why we weren't flying, but the group was flying and ran into some pretty rough opposition while we were cooling our heels. Of course, Wesley had no idea what he was in for on his next mission, or he may have valued the time off a little more highly. The crew took off in the 8-Ball Mark III with the intention to bomb targets in Germany, but intense cloud cover made it impossible for them to reach those targets. The Air Commander, General Robert Travis, made the call to bomb a target of opportunity, an airfield in Denmark. Our plane was hit by flak just after bombs away, and we lost number two and number four engines. We dropped like a rock from the formation. The gunners jettisoned their ammo, the tail gunner firing his gun until it was dry. The bombardier tossed out the bomb site. Anything else loose and unessential was tossed out of the plane to lose weight, and the pilots were able to stabilize their altitude at about 1,100 feet according to Jenkins, but my recollection was that we were skimming the waves. Wesley, meanwhile, was occupied with his radio. Well, I was serious about my uh, radio. I was in communication with the uh, home, with the British Air Sea Rescue, in case we had to fall into the drink, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was amazed uh, after we got back to the base, the air sea rescue was in constant touch with our base, telling them what was happening to us. We finally straggled into Molesworth about an hour behind the group. The engineer was not sure about the landing gear, thought it might be damaged some, so the emergency vehicles, fire trucks and ambulances were waiting along the runway for us to land, as well as a contingent of airmen and ground personnel cheering us in. Jenkins really did a nice job of greasing us in with a really smooth landing. We picked up a few passengers, some of our ground crew, on the way to the hard stand. After parking, we got a nice reception by the ground crew and others. We got back on that uh, at, during the uh, exit briefing for that mission, and one of the officers had told a pilot, he says, uh, about the strength of my radio signals. <laughs> he says, hey, my signal was so strong, it had blown them off their seat. <laughs> <laughs> there were more than 120 flak holes in the eight ball and a leak in the oil line of their number three engine. It would have only run for about 10 more minutes. Despite the heavy damage, the ground crew repaired the eight ball and Wesley flew two more missions in the aircraft. It was around this time that Wesley heard about another crew that refused to fly any more missions. They had a rough mission a day or two earlier, and one of the crew members was killed. I never heard what happened to the crew after that. Bomber crews flew in the face of terrible odds. In some groups, the odds of surviving the required number of missions for discharge was as low as 20%. Crews or individuals that refused to fly missions 
were typically reassigned to ground duties or discharged, but they were also heavily stigmatized. This was intentional to prevent soldiers from choosing not to fly, but came at a heavy cost for those suffering from what is now recognized as post-traumatic stress disorder. Many of them carried shame for the rest of their lives. Wesley's 26th mission was again under Air Commander General Robert Travis, targeting a synthetic oil plant in Czechoslovakia. Macho General Travis reportedly broke radio silence and challenged the Luftwaffe to come up and fight. We were ready for them. The Luftwaffe did put in a short but destructive appearance. Our gunners received a good workout and three B-17 were lost. Wesley wrote that the attacks mostly came out of the sun. About 25 enemy aircraft came after them during a gap in their fighter support, and gunners in the group were given credit for six aircraft destroyed. After having flown more than 25 missions in about two months, Wesley's crew was eligible for a seven-day leave, often called flak leave. We saw a compulsory movie, Battle of China, which further fueled the rumors that we could be moving. We were talking to a bombardier who flew in the Pacific Theater, and he said that he would rather fly three missions over there than one here. He never saw flak concentrations like he sees over Germany. The engineer on our crew, Gillespie, he was a Scottish descent, and uh, he thought it would be nice to go to Scotland. So I decided, well, that just sounds like a good place to go. I, I didn't know where my descendants lived in England, so we went up to Scotland for our 10-day uh, leave. So the rest of the guys, they fell in, you know, they go with to. They collected their goodie rations which included four candy bars, some cigarettes, lighter fluid, cookies, a magazine, and other odds and ends, and they headed to the train station to catch a train to Edinburgh. But we got on the wrong end of the train, and we ended up in Glasgow. We stayed there the first night at the Red Cross. The next day we went to Edinburgh, but we couldn't find a room there, so we went back to Glasgow. In Glasgow, they toured the university and museums, which at the time were, quote, relatively new, having been built in 1888. Wesley wrote in his manuscript that the Scots were very friendly and that, unlike the women in England, the women would not be spotted in a pub drinking or smoking. The Scots are a hardy people, too. I guess they have to be to cope with the weather and the terrain. It was cold and wet most of the time we were there. We were able to see a Scottish dance and the guys wore kilts with their bony knees hanging out and it looked like two days' work to get through one number. In the town of Paisley, just outside of Glasgow, they discovered an ice skating rink and went there several times. They rented skates that would clamp onto their boots. They didn't stick very well. <laughs> so we were stumbling around the rink. <laughs> then there was a bunch of girls, young girls in there. Well, they were trying to help us, of course. <laughs> anyway, we had a lot of fun. We spent two or three days and we went back to that place and, <laughs> and had a lot of fun. <laughs> Those girls were really, uh, you know, well, in fact, all the civilians 
in Scotland and England too. They couldn't do enough for you. They, they were really happy to see the, the U.S. boys over there. Well, we we were over there. We had they had been through a hell with bombing and all of this stuff, and and they were almost ready to give up, I guess. But when we came over there, we were full of piss and vinegar, and <laughs> you know, make things go. And uh, they appreciated that. They, their enthusiasm was outstanding for us, and what we were doing was outstanding. Uh, I, uh, they almost worshipped us. You know. Things started to improve when we got there. The bombing was going down, and we were doing the bombing instead of the game. But Wesley wrote in his manuscript that not everyone was nice, because someone stole their bag that had their souvenirs, smokes, candy, extra clothes, and other items in it. When they got back to Molesworth, they were able to get some double bunks and rearrange the Nissen hut to make more room for activities. Before they flew another combat mission, Jenkins, the pilot, secured them a slow time flight. After major repairs, the replacement of engines and whatever, they had to put so many hours to make sure everything was functioning as it should. So uh, our pilot decided well, he'd take a ride up through Scotland and look over the scenery while we were breaking in these engines. We flew over Edinburgh and Glasgow is where we spent most of our vacation at. And uh, turned around, came back into Molesworth, but it, it was nice. We get to see different things over there. He wrote in his manuscript, we headed north, flew over the Edinburgh Castle, then to Glasgow over the American Red Cross, the skating rink at Paisley, and the dog-racing amphitheater, and generally viewed the landscape for an hour or so. Then we had to head back because we didn't have much fuel. It was a nice trip because we flew low enough to get a good view of the scenery and landscape. We were gone about four and a half hours. On September 24, there was a big celebration for the second anniversary of the 303rd Battle Group in the European Theater of Operations. The beer was free, but they took seven shillings from our pay to cover the costs. There was a carnival in camp and movies all day long. There was supposed to be a bunch of women in camp, but I didn't see any. If there was, they were probably at the officers' club. It was really cold out, near freezing with wind and rain, and most of the airmen were sticking close to their stoves. Two days later, on the 26th, Wesley's crew was back to flying missions, attacking a railroad marshalling yard in Germany. I almost had it on this mission. While copying a radio message, my printing dribbled off to a smear, but thank goodness I could still think clear enough to realize that something was wrong. My oxygen mask froze up and was leaking on the side. 
I was able to thaw it out and make a temporary fix, but it was scary to realize how quickly something can happen at those high altitudes and cold temperatures. Wesley also wrote that after this mission, the engineer on their crew seemed depressed and ready to quit. He went to the hospital to get help and ended up sitting out on the next mission. Bombing more railroad yards in Germany, Wesley had another close call. While he was dispensing chaff, a large piece of flak blew through the radio room very near where his head usually was when operating the radio. Another piece of flak hit a bomb in the bomb bay and knocked a piece of the fuse mechanism back into the radio room. I still have this piece. Wesley's 29th mission was another hot one over Germany. Flak was relatively meager, but an estimated 40 enemy fighters made persistent attacks. Wesley wrote that the tactics they used showed the pilots to be experienced and determined. Friendly fighters engaged in dogfights, and the B-17 gunners got another workout. 11 B-17s didn't return from this mission. Wesley's aircraft returned to Molesworth on three engines. We put our second aircraft in the hangar for major repairs in two days. Gunners claimed nine enemy aircraft downed, all confirmed. We flew this mission without our regular engineer, Gillespie, and our bombardier, Protzman, who had entered the hospital before the mission. We had a big interrogation after this mission, with three generals, a number of colonels, majors, etc. They got real interested when we had fighter attacks. We enjoyed the whiskey, donuts, fruit juice, and coffee, anyway. We were off for a few days, and I discovered that the wild blackberries were ripe and found lots of them to eat along the hedgerows. We shot some skeet, too. After their next mission, they took another slow-time flight. Also, and Wesley never found out why, the officers on his crew were restricted to the base for two weeks. Wesley and his crew were getting close to the 35 combat missions required of bomber crews for them to be able to go back to the continental United States. But Wesley still got tapped to be the radio operator on practice missions, too. On October 12, he flew with a pilot who needed practice, and after a mission on October 14, he spent the 15th with a crew practicing landings and takeoffs. We made 23 landings in two hours of flying time, I don't know if they were doing this as a punishment or what, but I felt punished. On his next combat mission, Wesley flew with a different crew than he was used to as well. This was our next to last mission, and our crew was all broken up. Four of us former non-com crew members were assigned to four different crews, and it was uncomfortable to be flying with a bunch of strangers. Wesley flew his 35th combat mission on October 22, attacking a tank assembly plant in Brunswick, Germany. There was light flak, and he wrote it was an almost perfect mission. The last mission was, uh, well, I was assigned to a different crew, and the pilot was relatively new. And it was different, and different people on board. <laughs> you didn't know, you know, who was going to do what. So it was kind of nerve-wracking, but uh, I did my duty and 
we got back okay. On our return to base, some of my old crewmates were waiting at the hard stand for me, and we had a joyous get-together. They had finished a couple of days earlier. Looking back over my combat tour of duty, I was extremely lucky to have completed my 35 missions with no apparent physical damage. At the start, I think I tended to take one mission at a time, and with each one, our chances of surviving looked fairly good. As the number of missions grew though, so did the number of aircraft lost and severely damaged, and airmen lost and wounded also increased, and gradually the feeling grew that completing 35 missions would not be so easy. The youthful feeling of confidence and invincibility gradually dissipated and began to be displaced by the pressure and worry that possibly the odds would catch up to us eventually. During the time I flew combat missions, I participated in the Battle of Normandy, the Battle of Northern France, and the Battle of the Rhineland, for which I am entitled to wear the ribbons. I also earned the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Air Medal with three oak leaf clusters. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Preserving Valor. We'll finish Wesley's story in the next episode. Subscribe to make sure that you don't miss it. You can also visit preservingvalor.com to subscribe to our weekly email, check out previous episodes, and find links to our social media platforms. Preserving Valor features interviews with actual American veterans. If you're interested in sharing your story of service, you can reach out via email to preserving.valor at gmail.com. And, as always, a huge thank you to Wesley and all the veterans who served alongside of him.